Well, as we saw uh, last week, um, these verses of ours in chapter 3 form a, an extended parenthesis. Paul is very much uh, uh, going for uh, the point where he begins and prays for the, the Ephesians. Paul is setting out to pray for these brethren that they might have a fuller, firmer grasp on the, uh, uh, an understanding of Christ's love. But in doing so, he sees a great need to uh, expound yet again uh, his ministry to the Gentiles. He sees the need to express to the Ephesians what exactly is the nature and the purpose of his ministry, that they would f be filled with hope, that they, as he uh, finishes off when we get there in, chapter, in verse 13, that they would themselves be encouraged not lose heart, but be encouraged with all things that are happening in Paul's life. Paul, as we saw last week, had a, a, a clear sense of his uh, ministry, the nature of that ministry, particularly of the privilege it was for him to be in that ministry, the privilege of his office, the, the, the awareness that he had of the dignity uh, of his apostolate, of his calling. But not only that, as we begin, and uh, we will look, last week we looked from verse 1 to verse 7, because of time we didn't move forward. Today we'll look from verse 8 to verse 13. As uh, we look at verse 18, we see that not only Paul had a, a clear uh, sense of the nature and the dignity and the privilege it was to serve him, he also has a clear sense of his unworthiness to be a servant of God. He had a clear sense of his unworthiness. That's what he says there in verse 8. Look at, look at it with me. He says, to me, and the emphasis there in the Greek, uh, the, the Greek is a, 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 an interesting language, very much alien to us in some aspects, that in Greek, a sentence structure doesn't necessarily have to, uh, rules. You can have the verb at the beginning or the verb at the end. You can have the subject or the object you, uh, at any point in the in the in any given sentence. Um, that this is done so that, for emphasis, they can move words around. They can move the verb to the beginning. Or they can move the subject or the object to the beginning to place an extra emphasis. And very much the emphasis, as Paul uh, begins to write this to, to, the, to the Ephesians, this, this section, is, is correctly translated. He says, to me, he, he places that first and foremost, to me, who am, the less, uh, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles. This man who came to knowledge of the Lord and that, on that road uh, to Damascus. This man who was a fierce persecutor of the church, but who later became perhaps uh, the greatest preacher, the greatest missionary of the, of the Christian church in all ages. This man to, him, to whom was given the privilege of writing the great majority of the New Testament he calls himself as the least of all the saints, or less than the least of all the saints. He's saying, look, gather all the saints together. Look at all of them. I'm less than the least of them. And you might say, as some of the younger generation now calls it, it, it might, it's, it's just a humble brag uh, on his part. Late uh, in, in a, Later generations, perhaps we, we would say it's mock modesty on the part of Paul to say this. He's just, he, he's just not wanting to put the spotlight on himself, but, but he really thinks himself to be that. And I would say you're, you're totally wrong. You don't really understand Paul if you think that this is mock modesty, that this is a, a sort of a humble brag. Like, uh, like he's trying to put emphasis on himself to, to prop himself up. Because Paul, remember him. He was a fierce persecutor of the church. In his day and age, he was perhaps the harshest of the antagonists of the, of the people of God. 
in his rancor, in his pharisaical-like zeal, he persecuted the church at points to, to the point of death. Paul is not being m m modest here. Paul actually felt himself to be the less than the least of all the saints because of his past. He himself says it in Acts 22 that he persecuted Christians to the death. In, in chapter 26 of Acts, Paul goes on to act uh, to add that he, uh, he thought it was his duty, that it was his God-given duty to persecute as many Christians as he could, and he was doing so at the behest of the uh, priests in, in Jerusalem. He said that he put many in prison, that he caused many to blaspheme. He tortured them, those Christians, to the point that they denied the Lord. And he thought it to be a success in doing that. To the Corinthians, when he writes, he says he is not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. To Timothy, he writes and says that he is the chief of sinners. Why? Because he knows his past. He knows his unworthiness to perform this role. He has no qualms. It's not mock modesty. It's not uh, a humble brag, uh, a self-deprecating brag, a uh, humble uh, brag that, that seeks to put attention and the spotlight on him. He truly believed this. He believed himself to be little and unworthy. He was conscious of his sin. And brothers and sisters, we, we need to learn this. Because this is the key to true humility. You, you want to know what true humility looks like. True humility begins with the right sense of our own selves. Paul did not forget who he was in his previous life. Paul did not forget who, what he had done. He was not wallowing over it. He knew that he, all his sins had been forgiven. But he remembered those things so that now the grace of Christ might be highlighted further. So that he made himself little so that Christ would become great in his eyes. So often our emphasis and our, our focus is right the contrary. We, we, we build ourselves up. And then Christ becomes little in our eyes. You want to know why Paul was able to be content in a Roman prison and under house arrest for two years as he writes this letter and he's, he's full of content and joy in the Lord. You want to know why he was able to have that joy? Because he understood what he was uh, worthy of receiving. He understood what was his due before Christ came into his life. He had a deep sense of what God had saved him from. So that now, as he's standing there under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and, and this, by the way, it's not house arrest like we think of it today, where you're in your own home and you have all the commodities, you're just not free to, to leave. No, he, he was under house arrest in a Roman uh, jurisdiction. Uh, uh, judicial system. It wasn't a, a, a holiday for him. But the reason why he was content was because he knew what he deserved. He didn't forget that at that instant he was graced far beyond what he deserved, even in a Roman prison. He understood that he was once an enemy of God that he was once estranged from God, working actively against the Lord Jesus Christ, persecuting the church which Christ loves, and that he deserves hell. And in his mind, I'm sure he would say to you, this prison is not hell, so this prison is a grace of God. 
And that's what we need to learn as well. In order to be humbled, in order to be content as Christians, we need to learn that if we're not experiencing hell, we're experiencing a grace, even as we go through affliction. We need to remember that we were once enemies of God, that what we rightly deserve is hell, eternal punishment. Yes, maybe some of us were not as openly enemies as others. There are degrees and there are uh, different aspects of being an enemy of God, but we are all enemies. Perhaps some of us were like Paul and more atheistic and more vehement and more uh, openly against God, but, but that doesn't mean that those who weren't open against, openly against God were less of enemies because we were all disobedient. That's the state we were all in when Christ saved us. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses, as Paul has already said in, in, in chapter 2. We are all enemies. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 to 11, For scarcely of a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that we were still, while we were still sinners. Paul is including himself in this. He's including all of us in this. Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more now, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliations. We, we were enemies, brother and sister. That's the source of our humility, to remember who we were. Paul says to the Colossians, we were alienated. We were enemies in, your, in our, our mind by wicked works. Yet now we are reconciled. But we were that. Paul says that you and you and me, we're all enemies. And if you don't recognize that, I have fear to say, but you're probably not a Christian. If you don't recognize that you were once estranged going to hell and you profess to be in Christ, I, I have strong reasons and I, I, I think I have the backing of God's word in this to doubt that that is a uh, uh, a correct assessment. If you don't recognize that, if you don't recognize that there was a time that you were without Christ, if you don't see a clear demarcation from a previous life that you hated the Lord and all that the Lord loved, and now you love the Lord and hate everything that God hates, if you don't see it, even if... Uh, through a mirror dimly, those kind of changes. Is there any spirit at work at you, in you? And yet God saved us, some of us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, he drew us near to Christ. He bound us to him. And now we can look back and say, this is who I was. This is what I deserved. All of us, in a sense, we should. as If we truly understood our sin uh, in our previous life, and if we truly understand our sin even now, but if, especially in our previous life, if we truly understood what we deserved, all of us would rightly say with Paul, I'm less than the least of all the saints. How much mercy and gratitude, how much mercy and grace God has given us. How much gratitude we should have for him continually. But sadly, we have a tendency to, to, to forget the hell that our sin deserves. And when that happens, by, by consequence, 
Because we forget the hell that our sin deser rightly deserves. We, 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 we diminish and we, we water down the privileges that we now enjoy in Christ. Why is it so difficult for us these days to respond to affliction and suffering and, and difficulties in our lives? Because we've missed the, 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 we've missed the grace of God even in, the, in these afflictions. It was Thomas Watson, I believe, that said that anything but hell is a grace from God. Anything but hell. If you're enjoying something that is uh, not hell as a, as a believer... You're enjoying the grace of God. Because hell is what we all deserve. And that's why we become bitter. That's why we become resentful. Oh, we have no qualms, do we? When, when we pray, we, we say, oh Lord, I am the worm, a worm of the dust. I, I, I am a vermin. I, we do not deserve uh, any mercy from you. And we say it with our prayers. We say it to the Lord, but it is so hypocritical because as soon as someone deals with us uh, unjustly, we cry foul. I didn't deserve this. Oh, really? You're either a worm, you don't deserve any grace, you deserve hell. Or you're not a worm and you, you, whatever someone wrongly or un, unjustly did to you is undeserved and you can cry foul. That's the source of contentment for us to know what we rightly deserved. That's why Paul was not bitter, depressed in, the, in this confinement in Rome at this moment. Because his theology, his understanding of what he was and what he is now, and his understanding of the sovereign Lord overruling over everything, he, his theology deeply impacts the way he lives. He didn't just believe in the total depravity of man as a, a, a doctrine of, of academics, something to be written in, in a systematic theology about. He understood the doctrine of total depravity, just, not just in the context of, of evangelism. We understand the doctrine of total depravity in the context of evangelism. We know. We know and we believe this and, and we pray that God would open hearts because otherwise no one will believe. There is no, not one, Paul says. But it's not the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't apply just to systematic theology. It doesn't apply just to evangelism. It applies to the whole of our lives. To believe that we were once totally depraved and God yet still in his mercy saved us should shape and form how we interact with everything in our lives from that moment forward should cause us all to cry out with Paul, I am less than the least of all the saints. Because that's what we are without the grace of God. Well, well so not what we are without the grace of God. That's what we were outside of the grace of God. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And now in the grace of God, we're saints Brethren, brothers and sisters, we need to have a clear understanding of this. That without the grace of God, that's what I was trying to say, without the grace of God, we deserve, we were going to hell. And instead of hell, no matter what situation we're in in our lives today, if we're not in hell, he, we're being showered with privileges and grace and mercy day by day. Our life is one of blessing upon blessing, even in the midst of trials and afflictions. Paul says to me, who am the least, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. This grace was given. What grace, you ask Paul? Well, the grace to preach to the Gentiles, yes. The grace the, in its narrow focus. But he also says, not just to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, but the broader focus also to make the mystery known. The, the fellowship of the mystery, Paul says, 
uh, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. There is a, a narrow focus of the preaching to the Gentiles. There is a broader focus, a more uh, general focus uh, to the rest of the church. And I think here there is a distinction that is clear that applies in our ministry in church as well. We have the narrow focus of preaching the gospel, the specific focus of telling the world of the gospel, but we also have the, the broader focus of teaching the saints, of instructing, of being instructed and instructing, of building up one another. Well, let me just go through these two really quick. Paul says, verse 8 and uh, towards 9, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. First of all, we need to remember this. We've, we've touched upon this in chapter 2 already, but, but let me touch it up upon it again. To be a preacher to the Gentiles was not something filled with honor in Paul's context. To be a preacher to the Gentiles... It was not something that necessarily uh, one would consider a, a grace. It was more of a disgrace in Paul's context. Even among believers, as we find in Galatians, as we find even in Acts. You remember when Peter was given that vision from heaven to take and eat. It was basically an, a, a, a symbol that he was to go and preach to the Gentiles. What was Peter's reaction then, he was repulsed. He resisted at first. Eventually, uh, he acquiesced. But he resisted. Why? Because it was a disgraceful thing to go to the Gentiles, those unclean dogs. Even in the context of church, this was still very much a problem. There's the letter of Galatians, where the church was deeply divided by... Uh, uh, on ethnical grounds, there was there was no union. The the Jews looked at the Christian uh, uh, the Christian Jews looked look at the Christian Gentiles as if they were beneath them, still. And Paul writes this letter to tell them no. The Jews would tell the Christian Gentiles, yeah, you you're okay, you have Christ, but you still need a few more things in order to be uh, really holy. In all, order to be a real Christian, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow these things. There was still very much this division. For Paul to say to me, who am the less, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles, is a shocking statement. It is a shocking statement to make. And he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, for enough time to go through this. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The word there is, is a, a, an interesting word. I hope you don't mind, but I think it opens up a little bit of the meaning here. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The word for unsearchable there is a word that was used in, in uh, ancient times uh, primarily as a word for in, in the hunting kind of environment. Let's say a hunter is pursuing a prey and uh, he thinks he has the prey cornered because he's following the, 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 the trails, the marks that were left. But all of a sudden, the, the, the trail the, the, the goes, goes cold. You can, they can, the person can no longer trace the footsteps. That's where the word gets used. It's unsearchable. It's no longer traceable. You can no longer pursue that to the end because you've lost it. That's how the word was originally used, and here is applied to the riches of Christ. And what it means is the riches of Christ, brothers and sisters, they are unsearchable. You cannot pursue them to the end. They're infinite. You cannot find its end. You cannot comprehend it fully. You cannot uh, pack it up, put it in a box, and say, these are the riches of Christ. Paul is saying, no, no, no. It's beyond that. It's unsearchable. It's untraceable. And you ask, how is Christ rich? How is he not rich, I reply to you. He is rich in power. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in grace and compassion. He is full of kindness. His goodness knows no end. In countless other things, Christ is rich beyond all measure. 
reach beyond what we can comprehend or pursue or, or, or wrap our heads around it. We cannot assimilate this. You wouldn't be able to write a, uh, volumes and tomes of books uh, enough to contain the riches of Christ. There is no words enough in all of the human languages combined. If you spoke the tongues of angels in all the human languages that ever existed and do exist and will exist in the future, if you spoke all of them and gathered them all together and began to express the riches of Christ, still you wouldn't even begin to climb to the heights of how rich he is. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. He who was rich beyond all splendor, for love's sake he became poor. So, do, so that we who were poor, wretched sinners might be rich in him. That, so that as he became poor, then in his poverty we are now blessed with the riches that are unsearchable and, and un, uh, unmentionable now in him. And this is not riches like the world knows riches. The world knows of riches. They, the riches are very much the overruling sentiment and the overruling aim and goal of this world. They want riches. And there are people trying to climb the ladder, uh, getting, uh, getting more riches. That, these are not those kind of riches. Because those are not true riches. I'll tell you why. You, the day you die, all of those riches... If they've survived the rot and the moth and, moth, and if they survive the rust, all those riches will go to someone else. They are not yours to keep. You came into this world naked and you go from this world naked. The riches that Christ gives are true, true riches. They are eternal. They're undefilable. They last. And they are secure. No one can steal them. That's the offer of the gospel. And I'll say this to you, to you who are not in Christ. I don't care how much you think you have in your bank account. How full, how loaded your bank account is. Maybe you have the, the, a portfolio of property in London and, and abroad uh, that, that numbers in the millions. You are a poor wretch if you are without Christ. You are poor without Christ. And I know no one comes to church to be offended. No one wants to be offended in our day and age. But that's the reality. Outside of Christ, if he is the only source of true everlasting riches, if you're outside of Christ, whatever you consider to have that are riches, they are not really and if you have no riches, you are poor. You're a poor wretch. All that this world offers are, is a passing illusion of riches, a passing illusion of, of status, that, that if it lasts to its fullest, will die down when you die. Because you go to the grave empty-handed. If you're not in Christ, you are a poor wretch. But there is good news. In Christ, the offer of riches beyond our comprehension is given. Riches that no man can, can take away from you. That go beyond death into eternal life. That is the message of the gospel. The same gospel that Paul is here called to preach to the Gentiles. The unsearchable riches of Christ. There very much was the, the, the same uh, tendency. Human, human behavior hasn't changed that much in, in uh, six or 7,000 years of existence, has it? It's, it's all about status and money. It's all about power and influence. And Paul preaches to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I'm sure he emphasized these same things. But he says that there is a broader context of his ministry. And quickly here, 
that he would make known to the, make all to see the, the, the word there is to uh, lighten. I think that the AV translates this as uh, in some way uh, with the sentiment of light to bring to light to that all would see like it's noonday the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. That is the broader aspect and that is the aspect that we need to come to terms with. Not just the gospel preaching but knowing the broader the, the, the broader aspect knowing the, the the fellowship of the mystery becoming acquainted with it studying it uh, delving deep into it taking those things that we take pleasure in or should take pleasure in we we ponder on those things he was to make known to all jew and gentile the fellowship of god and this is a lesson for us because the, the ministry is not limited to the gospel to the lost. The ministry is also to build one another up that we may grow in our deep and deepen in our understanding of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that these things were once hidden, as he already mentioned in what we saw last week. Uh, these things were once hidden, but now they're revealed, they're given to you, that you may know them, that you may Pursued it to the best of your ability. Psalm 111, a favorite verse of mine says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all of those who have pleasure in them. If you paraphrase it, how amazing are the works of God. They are pondered by those who delight in them. Do you delight in the works of God? If you do, you will want to know them deeper. You want to have a clearer grasp. And praise God, praise God Almighty that he gave us not just the, to, to be uh, partakers of it. He gave us the word of God that we may dwell, del delve deeper into it. You see, God is not like Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh in Exodus. Pharaoh in Exodus, as he wants to punish the, the Israelites, what does he say to them? You know what? You're going to do the same amount of bricks every day, but now I'm not going to give you the straw. You have to go and fetch the straw for yourselves. Praise God that he's not like Pharaoh. He says to us, you're going to do the work, but I'm going to give you all that you need. And this is all that we need. This, the word of God, as we have it in our homes, it translated into our language, even, even uh, uh, available in, in, in different devices. As we have books that expound these truths. Most importantly, as we have the ministry of God's word being preached day, week in and week out on the Lord's day. For what? So that we may grow in our understanding of the fellowship of the mystery. Which from the beginning of the ages was hidden but now is revealed in Christ. God has given us the resources. He has given us the straw that he, as he's asking us to, to build the bricks. Now it is our duty as Christians to make responsible use of these things. To whom much is given, much is required. And we live in a society, brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age that we have been given so much. The amount of Freedom do we have in the West to read our Bibles is something that for bar the last 300, 400 years, no Christian has ever had. We have our Bibles. We can have them. We can carry them. We can read them. We have them in our phones. We have access to tomes and tomes of good um, books that expound these truths. And what use do we make of them? Very little. To whom much is given, much is required. Let us make it our duty to make responsible use of these things. And fourthly, and lastly, we've seen these un uh, the unworthiness, the sense of unworthiness that Paul had. We've seen the, the, how burdened he was to fulfill his ministry, the scope uh, broad and, 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 uh, and narrow of his ministry. And now let us look lastly at the purpose the purpose of the, uh, of the ministry, the purpose of the church, actually. 
read with me, because what we are about to consider is perhaps one of the, the holiest places in Scripture. It's holy ground, as John Calvin would say. It was hidden in God, created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Stop there for a moment. Wait a minute, Paul. What is the ministry of the church? What is the, the, the goal of the church, Paul? That the church might, ex or that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places? Isn't that a surprising statement? What is the purpose of the church, Paul? The, 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 the primary focus of the, of the church and purpose of the church, Paul, is it to go out into all the world and make disciples? Paul would say yes, of course, but that's not the primary. Is it to, to edify one another? Yes, of course, but that is not the main point. That's the instruments through which the main purpose of the church is accomplished. And what is the main purpose, he says? That the wisdom of God might be made known to the powers in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Paul had already referred to this. First of all, we have mentioned this, principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Paul is mentioning the angels here. This is spiritual language. This is angels in the heavenly places. The, the, the angels have orders. They have hierarchies. The Bible is very succinct when it speaks about these things, so we won't try to uh, answer questions that the Bible doesn't answer. But, but there is enough in Scripture to tell this. There are orders. There are ranks. We, and Paul already spoke about this when he said that Christ was given a name about every name that is named. He says that he was raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above the principality and power and might and dominion. That's, that's where Christ was seated, uh, far above the angels and the spiritual hosts. That's, where, that's what Paul is speaking of here with regards to the purpose of the church. And he says that we are to make known the wisdom of God to them. What is the purpose? Why did the church of Jesus Christ come into existence? So that God would receive the glory in heaven. How does God receive the glory in heaven? By us accomplishing that broad and narrow focus. By us preaching the gospel. By us building us one, one another up. Uh, edifying this, this holy temple. But the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that God would be praised in heaven. Look at, if, look at for instance, we won't have time to go through all of this, but looks, let's look at what, how Peter puts it. Turn with me for a moment. Let's, let's read, it, read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to, through ten, uh, 12. Or verse, 1 Peter... Chapter 1, verse 10 to, through to 12. Peter says, Of this salvation, the gospel, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then it just adds this point there, but I, I think it is significant to our discussion. Things which angels desire to look into. 
You know when you're out about in the street and there's this big commotion and everyone's looking at the same place and you, you kind of just want to peer and look over and see what they're looking at? It says here in scripture that in days gone by, before the coming of Christ, angels desired to know what Christ was about to do. To know what Christ, uh, what, how God was going to accomplish uh, his purposes. How God's redemption would work out in history. And it's with awe and wonder that they see the Son of God take on human flesh. Be born of a virgin in that humble stable in, in Bethlehem. And they look in wonder. And they sing the praises of God. And then they see him live his life, come to the cross, die an atoning death. And they praise the Lord Almighty that in his wisdom, he's managed to marry his perfect justice where sin is dealt with finally and justly. And yet his mercy and compassion are revealed. And angels, what do they do? They praise God for it. They see in the church of Jesus Christ as they look unto us. They see in the church of Jesus Christ the, the manifestation of the wisdom, power, love of God, all married together in perfect uh, harmony, where sin has been dealt with, where love has been given, and the angels praise God for it. You know, when Paul is dealing with some problems in the church in Corinth, you know what he mentions? He mentions that it's because of the angels that women should be um, uh, wearing the uh, head covering in the, the, because of the angels. At the same time, he gives us a sense of what the public gathering of the church is. When we gather, brothers and sisters, we do not gather just in the presence of one another. We gather in the presence of God, the Father, God, the Son, through the power of God, the Spirit who indwells us. And we are also told that the angels come alongside to watch in awe and wonder. Not of, with us. We're, we're very much not the, the, the central piece. They come and, and stay and, and stand in awe and wonder of what God has done. That he's reconciled these enemy sinners to him. That he's reconciled these once divided races that were hated each other to one another and the angels look on with wonder and study it so that they may praise God for it. John MacArthur, he says this in his commentary, he says, the church does not exist simply to fulfill the purpose of saving souls, though this is such an important and wonderful work. The supreme purpose of the church, as Paul makes explicit here, is to glorify God by manifesting his wisdom before the angels who can offer greater praise to God. It is all for the glory of God. He continues, he says, the church is not an end of itself, but a means to an end. The end is to glorify God. The real drama of redemption can only be understood when we understand that the glory of God is the supreme purpose goal of creation. Brethren, the church is the exhibit. We are the showcase piece that God uses to manifest to all creation how loving, how wise, how just, how holy, how marvelous he is. And that should give us a sense of awe to belong to the church. Because if there are, is anything in the universe that the angels of, the, of God are looking forward to, if there is anything that the creation is groaning for, it's for this, it's for the, for the church of Christ to be manifest more powerfully. So that is why it's so wrong to have churches as spectacles, as uh, entertainment venues. This idea that the church is to become a, all things to all men. And that's how we fulfill our duty as a church. 
as we grow in number, as we, we open in our, 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 our minds and accept every single uh, uh, teaching that this world produces, uh, as we do these things, that, that's why that's so wrong. Because there is no way I can overemphasize. There is no way that anyone can overemphasize the role of the church. Universal, Catholic, as they say, and local. Us, here, present, now. As we are gathered here this moment, God is receiving glory from his holy angels and from the saints who have gone into his presence because of what he's done in his church, in his manifold wisdom. It's as if the, there is a classroom in the whole of the universe. This is, again, John MacArthur's illustration, but I'll finish with this illustration. It's as if there is a classroom. A classroom is the whole of the universe, the angels. God is the teacher. The angels are the students. And the church is the exhibit, the showpiece. The subject of the matter that they are studying, it's not the church. The, the church is being used as an illustration to show the angels how wise, how holy, how just God is. That's why we need to be so careful with the church, with its doctrine, with its testimony, with its holiness, with its practice. Oh, so often we, we have the right doctrine. We have the right things. We look to the unlooking world. We look uh, the part. But then the practice. How we live. How we love. You see, the, the main focus of the church... The main purpose of the church is not to prop up a man or multiple men, not to make a, a, a personal fiefdom, kingdom to a person. The role of the church is for Christ to be honored. And to the extent that we honor Christ, the angels praise God. For it. In God's eternal decree, the church occupies a preeminent, supreme place. Let us remember that. And let us count it a privilege to belong to this great church. The church was not God's plan B, as some say. The church was not a parenthesis in the, in the history of Israel, as others advocate. The church is from the beginning, from before the beginning, as Paul would say in Ephesians. From the before the beginning of the world, the church already occupied the preeminent place in God's plan. That Christ, the husband, the bridegroom of the church, might receive the glory that he might inherit a people for himself. How wonderful are the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that should, and I'll close by saying this, that should bring us encouragement. Paul finishes by saying, do not lose heart. Remember these things. Remember who you once were. Remember who you were, where once you were going. Remember those things. Remember the privilege that has been given to you. This is not some prosperity gospel that I'm preaching. Remember the riches that God has given you. That is not prosperity gospel as some wolves in sheep's clothing preach. But we are given those riches. Remember these things. And therefore... Do not lose heart. Remember the privilege of belonging to the, to the body of Christ. And even now as you look at my imprisonment, Paul would say, even now as you look at my suffering for, for your sake, because I'm here because I preach the gospel to you, the Gentiles, even now as you look upon me, don't lose heart. Because it is all for your glory. 
It is all for your good. It is an honor for me to suffer for you. Is that the perspective that we have of those things? Is that how we see the ministry of the church? Is that how we see our ministry? As members of this body, do we see a privilege of serving Christ? Do we see the privilege of paying the price? Do we see the privilege of doing it for his glory? And yes, there are different degrees. We've men I mentioned this last week. I won't go into it again. There are different degrees. There are different roles. There are different callings. Paul was given one. I was given another. You are given another. But we all have the same uh, purpose in the, in the calling that we have been given. To some is to preach. To some is to, to minister in other ways. To some is to clean toilets and to, and to, uh, and to, to, to be good, uh, hard workers. As, John, uh, as William Carey would say, I'm, I'm a, a cobbler for the glory of God. I'm a, 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 a shoe fixer for the glory of God. doesn't matter. Do you count it as a privilege? it should be does the church have a priority in your life is it preeminent in your life and this is very easy for each of us to respond look at your calendars look at where you are when the church gathers look at how you prepare yourself for the for the gathering of the church that's very easy for us to 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 gauge what is the importance throughout the week that the church play, uh, plays in your life? Do you come to the gathered assembly with joyful expectation? Are you putting your gifts and talents to the service of the church? May God help us to do so. And if you're not in Christ, let me just say. Don't overlook the gift of Christ. The gift of these riches, it's not prosperity gospel. These gifts, they are eternal. Don't overlook them, don't neglect them. Because they are offered to you. And it is a, a, an offering that is very much real. Here they are. If you don't have Christ, you're poor, you're wretched, you're going to hell. But here is the unsearchable riches of Christ. They're being offered to you today. There will come a day, if you don't take that offer, there will come a day. It might be today. It might be at some other point. But there will come a day, I promise you this, that that offer will no longer be given to you. That you will receive the offer of the unsearchable riches of Christ for the last time. And then comes death. And if you haven't received him and his unsearchable riches, it is a death that is eternal and in hell. If you neglect it, I promise you, because this is what scripture says, you will spend an eternity in hell regretting the day that you were born. It's not my language. It's the language of scripture. You would prefer a thousand times to never have, never have been born. So I plead with you, do not despise the gift of God once again.